This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.org. No. Oh, um, no. <laughs> dot Three, R- two, one. <laughs> dot CA. You have one job. Dot <laughs> com. Dot tripod dot net. <laughs> uh speaking of uh, clown well, penis dot fart oh geez don't go there <laughs> now we gotta now i have to use the explicit tag on this episode thanks uh speaking of the union we have a union member joining us this is his first album pick but his 10th appearance Woo-hoo. that's a that's got to be a record that's a first been here for nine round tables you may know him from his alter ego tank boy, we're welcoming back Jim Copany. Hey. Howdy, howdy, howdy. How you doing? I am excellent. How's the Windy City? It is not too bad today. We're still enjoying a late uh, summer fall season. So I, I've been there in that time period, and that is nice. Got the lake. It's you can walk around, get yourself a Chicago dog, as the tourists do, like I do. And I discovered that Chicago in July, however, is very hot. It can get warm. It can get some. It can get some heat going, and it makes it that makes this the walking around getting your Chicago dog a little more um, treacherous because then you also need to refuel with the liquids every five feet off the blazing hot concrete pavement walking around Chicago. And we all flee to the lake in the parks. So that's how there we you go. Mitigate the the heat in the in the wonderful summer. parks in Chicago. Love the parks there. And uh, I don't know. We went to a place there. I'm going to diverge for a second, but we went to a place. And Sather's, is it still around? And Sather's is still around, the uh, cinnamon bun. Yes. Yep. Very, tasty. Very tasty. Glorious cinnamon rolls. Glorious. Absolutely fantastic. The best I've ever had in my life. And um, everyone should go there. I, of course, pronounced it correctly because I'm not a Chicago native. <laughs> I have that nasally East Coast uh, Buffalo. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, Jay. I hear Uh, it. You hear it. You hear it. Hard to get rid of. Salad. (laughs) Uh, Share with our audience the album that you have made for your inaugural selection. So I chose Blur's self-titled 1997 release, just because I think it's a, a, a nexus point of many of the of the things the band did in the past and led into the future. And it kind of was feeding off of, you know, Americana music of the time period, which was odd for a band that was just coming off of a wave of basically being the top of the Britpop heap. So it was an interesting switch for them, but it was driven by many, many reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. Yes, this album came out February 10th of 1997. This was the follow-up to um, their uh, album, The Great Escape, which was the Battle of Britpop album with Oasis. Now, if you remember, and young younger folks may not remember this, but there was a war in the 90s. <laughs> and it was in the UK press. Yeah. And it was all around... Blur and Oasis. I forgot and, about this. And it was uh, two singles, actually. It was August of 94. Was that the summer that it happened? Um, it was Oasis's country, or sorry, Oasis's Roll With It was the single, and Country House by Blur. Blur won the single war, but they lost the album battle because what's the story, Morning Glory? broke oasis in the united states thanks thanks to wonderwall blur did not have that happen with great escape although it does have one of my favorite blur songs the universal that's up there with probably top three blur songs of all time 
Um, so they followed it up with this record. It's a self-titled album. It was with their regular producer, Stephen Street. Um, I think this is, what is this, album number five? This is their fifth record? Uh, yeah, because uh, so we have... Leisure, Modern Life is Rubbish, yep. Dark Life, The Great Escape, and then Blur. There we go. And they formed in 88, uh, London, England. The band was, or is, because they just put out a record this year. Damon Elborn, Graham Coxon, Alex James, and Dave Roundtree. They've, it's the same four guys. They've always been together. And, um, you know, unlike Oasis, who's gone through drummers and bass players pretty mm, yeah. frequently. <laughs> uh, they've stayed together. Um, and they've actually, like I mentioned, put out a record this year, The Ballad of Darren, uh, after a, a long break from the, the Magic Whip, which came out, gosh, what was it, like 2012? 2015. 2015. Yeah. So obviously people know that Damon Elborn is busy with gorillas. He also does solo albums. Um, bass player Alex James makes cheese. Um, that could take some time. It does. I, I, I could see that. Uh, Graham Coxon has a solo career. He does. He releases solo records and he has in the last couple of years, I've noticed he's been doing a lot of collaborations and doing like some interesting work outside of just releasing records like he did like a soundtrack for something and um just and last it, year i think he did a soundtrack for a graphic novel that he wrote yeah pretty excellent i would recommend checking that out i did a graphic it, novel or the soundtrack um uh dave roundtree was actually involved with a mars mission for the european space agency like he's a huge nerd uh so all the all those guys are like doing things they're not just sitting around waiting for Damon Elborn to decide to not do gorillas and that uh so um this record came out like I mentioned in 97 uh the singles were released in uh, first single was released in January of 97 that was Beetle Bum, and then they released song two that's the one everybody knows that's the one that's still played at, at uh, football stadiums and and what all over the world uh, soccer stadiums if you're in the you know the rest of the world football stadiums if you're in the united states uh that's probably the song that every single person knows even if they don't know it's blur they just go Woo-hoo! that's they know it yeah Everybody in some ways podcast right now is singing that, 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 that. Uh, yeah, exactly <laughs> in the grand scheme of things i mean is that bigger than wonderwall then i think so i mean if you really think about the impact it has and how familiar people are with it I think Wonderwall is now a meme. Yeah. Really. Because yeah. people go, anyway, here's Wonderwall. Right. Whereas Blurs still gets played, you know, you know, and like I said, it's sporting events primarily. But you know, you hear it every once in a while, you're just like, Oh yeah, that song. Well, to, to to your point, Tim, it's the one of the songs that song two exceeded what it went beyond what the band is. It was just like everybody yep. knows song two, but like you yep. can't listen to Wonderwall without knowing it's Oasis. So I think that's kind of the difference between the two i mean it, yep. they're both in the cultural fabric now just one is irretrievably linked to one band and the other one is literally just a cultural movement in people's heads they, mm. which you know would, would, is fairly not great for blur's american record sales overall but <laughs> right they released two singles after song two on your own and um mor were released later that year i i did do a little research on this record specifically um they were actually pretty not going to break up, but there was a lot of strain in the band at this point because, well, first of all, the whole thing with Oasis was like kind of bad. They were they were getting beat, beat up in the press because Oasis were the working class band who came from, I think, the south of England, whereas Blur were seen as these like middle class Ponzi schoolboys pretending to be rock and rollers, but were really like intellectually snobby look down upon the working class kind of thing, which was not necessarily true. Um, but that was the perception that was, I guess, in the press at the time. And, you know, Noel Gallagher, who now is good friends with Damon Elborn, was like taking a lot of shots. I mean, this is, you know, this is rock and roll. That's what happens. Two bands become rivals and they start taking shots at each other. And the press loves it because it moves, you know, papers. Uh, so they... Um, I think it was Graham Coxon was like, we need to do something differently and started listening to Pavement. 
basically in American indie rock and was like, I need to do something different on guitar because I'm so it was, it was it was kind of the hangover of the of the trio of sort of Britpop albums because Modern Life is Rubbish, Park Life and Great Escape kind of did create a mini trilogy, even though it wasn't planned that way. But in retrospect, we can kind of see that as a period in their development. Mm-hmm. After that, you're right. After the huge bites over the Britpop wars, it took the toll on the band. Damon was starting to get into, I believe, heroin. Graham was getting into way too much drinking. Um, and it was just causing a huge problem in the band. And yeah, Graham felt that they needed to do something to change things up. He was really into American indie rock at the time, as were the rest of the guys in the band. It's not just Graham, but he definitely was given far more free reign. And unlike previous albums, they did a lot of kind of jamming to get the songs to come together, as opposed to just Damon coming in with a handful of demos and then building around that. Right. So there's a little bit more of an organic feel to it as well. And I think it's a sound of a band kind of remembering how to be a fun band together again. Yeah, I read that they had never jammed before this record. Like they would come in with like he, like Damon Hour were coming with a song and, and then they would like build their parts, but they didn't jam on them to like, oh, if we did this a little bit differently, maybe it would sound different. Mm-hmm. This was the first time they ever just got in a room and were like, I kind of got an idea. Let's see what happens with it. Which to me sounds crazy that you're five album in five albums in and you've never sat in a practice space and like like they were very much about constructing certain kinds of songs as opposed to just working it out. Um, so uh, what else was there that I saw about this uh, about this record? Because there was a, you know this is interesting looking back at this period because I didn't really pay attention to Blur in the '90s because they were so British, like there was something about that that made, was almost off-putting. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. like it was like a cultural divide that I didn't, like Park Life did not make any sense to me when I first heard it in the 90s. Song two makes sense, obviously because of the American indie rock influence. But even this record was like, hmm, it wasn't until like a decade later where I started to actually figure out, oh, okay, I understand what's happening. And it was a lot of it was, you know, listening to, um, more British stuff that I didn't listen to it at the time and all the, like the lesser known Britpop bands. Um, and the funny thing is you mentioned song two and the roots of that are in a demo that Damon did. That's more of like a bossa Nova Casio keyboard kind of thing. So that's just a good <laughs> example of how even bringing in something that was kind of demoed completely changed in the studio. And they kind of went with it. Cause I think if I remember correctly, that song started with um, Graham and Dave playing drums, two drum kits together. And then, street looping that through an early sampler and starting the drum track that way and they built it out from that and then Damon brought in the lyrics from that old demo but turned it into a massive guitar bar burner of a song and they thought like they were there from what I was reading there were there were two minds of this record one they knew that they did something really different from their previous stuff um they were like we had you know 15 year old girls in the front of the pit essentially dancing to our songs and we know we're making a very different record and we might mm-hmm. lose our fan base over this record because it's not as catchy and as poppy as the previous albums but also they were like kind of pissed at the record label which they were on food records but emi distributed food because emi was distributing radiohead in the uk and okay computer was out and they were like all about OK Computer and pushing that. And they're like, wait a minute, that's a weird record. Why aren't you, you're not going to push our record? Like, where's the singles on that one? And of course, there were huge singles <laughs> on that record. Um, <laughs> but uh, I get, I, I read that part of the like kind of angst that was happening was, so when the previous record came out, The Great Escape, it got almost universal acclaim when it came out, which makes sense. I mean, it was, they're riding high off of, park life and the whole battle of oasis but some of the press went back and reevaluated it then and lowered their ratings like q magazine <laughs> up, wrote an apology for writing their bad for the writing their positive review and wrote it like a negative review they were oh, like wow. caught up in the blur uh moment and like that's what that's crazy that's, that's the to kind me. of silliness you could only get from british music magazines in the mid 90s like that that's very so, much exactly so silly jay had you listened to much blur uh besides prepping for this record no they were always a band that you know obviously with all the connections to other bands i like they would come up quite a bit so i was familiar you know, with singles and stuff off the records before this. And then over the years, 
you know, if I put on a playlist for suede or whatever, they're going to pop in. If I put on a playlist for Supergrass, they're going to pop in. So they were always around Manix as well. Um, mm -hmm. So I became fairly familiar with them. Obviously, I knew song too. Right. But I hadn't spent much time listening to uh, any of the records. I think I first bought a Blur album on the next one, 13, because I liked coffee and TV, because Damon Alborn is wearing like a University of Buffalo sweatshirt in the video. <laughs> which is totally random. He must have just He's picked it up on tour. He was pan pandering to just you. Yeah, he was. Like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to win him I know the Sim over. guy thinks we're this weird British band. I'm going to win him over. Uh, yeah, that's essentially what happened. And that's that's uh, probably my favorite Blur album, to be honest. Um, we'll get to you know talking about our feelings on this record in a moment, but I want to share the Patreon comments on this record. Uh, Darren Leach said, been ages since I listened to this album. Re-listening, it reminded me of how experimental the band sounded on this album. In my opinion, it sounds like Graham Coxon brought in 14 guitar ideas and they built the songs around those in the studio with varied levels of success. They visited many genres across the 14 tracks. Some of them don't fit the album like Essex Dogs and Theme from Retro and would be best as B-sides. And I'm unsure how they can follow song two with a ballad. It's an EP for me. Uh, Kyle Bittner said, great album. I've read that it was a parody of American indie rock and influenced by the likes of Pavement. I don't think parody is quite correct. I think just influence is probably. Influence, yeah. Um, if that was the case, uh, they in fact succeeded. Where the album? Uh, Willie Dillon said, I really like the woohoo song. All goofing aside, I do enjoy the creativity and diversity on this album. It's not all perfect, but it's an enjoyable listen. And yes, I still enjoy, enjoy song two. And then Ian McIver said, my stance on this album has softened over the years. At first, I wasn't a big fan due to the radio overplay of song two, not to mention by friends. While there are still other albums in Blur's catalog I prefer, this isn't a bad album, and I can appreciate what Damon Alborn and company were trying to do by moving away from the Britpop sound while remaining faithful to what Blur was. It is definitely up there in their catalog. Mark your calendars, a rare, worthy album vote for me. You got the Ian stamp of approval, so there you go. I Dang, mean, that shows doesn't over. happen very often. We're done. <laughs> now let's get into it, Jay. You're digging into you're digging into the first full album of Blur. Tell me one thing yeah. you liked about it. Well, you could tell that the, it's ambitious. You can tell they're experimenting uh, right out of the gate. I like how they're using that. You can kind of hear that as the catalyst to find these special moments, I think, throughout the record where, you know, their sense of songwriting and melody and how they use uh, harmony vocals and guitar riffs and all these things, they're sort of deconstructed, I think, at times or put together in unexpected ways to where these little moments can happen throughout the record that really draw you in and feel unique and only possible through i think the experimentation you know i think you can imagine some of these songs being played you know um maybe as a yeah like a demo that you would build up or as a band strictly a band thing and they wouldn't be nearly as interesting so some of the some of the moments to me that stand out uh for example are that synth that comes in uh on strange new from another star so you know you kind of listen to that verse you think you know where the song's going and then that chorus comes in and it's got this stabbing synth under it that just creates this really like otherworldly kind of sound and it takes it to a completely different place it's got feels a little bowie to me which is cool mm -hmm. Snow 
vocal in Beetlebum, you, know, you can hear those harmonies come in. You can just hear a sense for melody. You know, when that song starts, I don't know where we're going. It's a really weird looped guitar riff. Just keeps repeating. You know, it has this deconstructed feel, but the second that vocal comes in, you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. Like right away, you pick up on the melody and things start to come together and the song, you know, plays out. But underneath it is still that weird guitar part, um, which I think it just, you know, creates that opportunity for, I think, his vocal to really sort of be elevated because it's contrasting with how odd the some of the instrumentation is. Uh, the guitar riff on On Your Own, another one, you know, it's a little broken and then you hear that riff come through and all of a sudden it establishes this hook out of these blips and bloops and weird sounds going on. And then that becomes the anchor for the, for the rest of that song. Uh, Death of a Party, another example where you get to that chorus and that guitar line comes in and it just goes from this eerie circus music vibe to like just a whole other thing. Uh, super hooky, great melody. So I, I think, I enjoyed that ride. I enjoyed like you feel like you're peeking behind the curtain a little bit and seeing a band like explore different things, play, bounce things off of each other and, you know, stumble upon in in that process, stumble upon some really special moments. It also, I think reminded me a little bit in that way of the white album and like that album also has these, a lot of experimentation, but it's also mixed with, you know, some, fair, you know, straightforward songs to some genre songs to, you know, some of their heaviest stuff like Helter Skelter, you know, it's kind of this, you know, uh, ambitious uh, experimental record that's got a lot of great material in it. And for some reason, it, I connected to it in that way. I was like, oh, maybe that's kind of where they were going with this and in terms of like letting themselves explore what they could be and and try different things and not be constrained by, you know, who they were. Uh, There's also some straightforward stuff too. Uh, I think Look Inside America is surprisingly straightforward. I mean, to me, it sounds almost like a Mata Hoople song. It's got the melancholy vocal with that bright propelling kind of band underneath it. MOR is just a great bouncing rock song. Song two, obviously, is just this pure burst of energy. Um, You're so great, you know, fairly straightforward, you know, kind of stripped down vocal and guitar song. So there, it's interesting, you know, you've got pretty ambitious experimental things, and then you've got this mix of other handful of stuff that's, you know, on, on their own. You know, they can kind of stand on their own. It's fairly straightforward, um, just, you know, well-written song. So that's some of the stuff that worked for me. What worked for you, Tim? Well, what always works for me, first and foremost, is Graham Coxon as a guitarist. He's always doing really interesting, weird things. Even back in the previous years, you know, you listen to Park Life, you listen to like Girls and Boys, and that song has some really wild guitar parts on it for a basically a dance song (laughs) and he's doing stuff that you should not be doing and i think that that's what always has made him one of my favorite guitarists is that you don't know from song to song what effects he's going to use how he's going to loop his guitar how he's going to come up with strange noises um if you've never checked out any of his solo stuff there's an album called happiness in magazines that was my introduction to him as a solo artist and is absolutely fantastic. It's just imagine the, the rockers on this kind of in an American indie rock vibe. And that's what that's that album is just like 14 tracks of these like really catchy pop rock songs. It's probably the most cohesive album he has ever put together. Um, and I think it was when blur was kind of separated at that point. But that said, I, I think what works so well on this record is that they did not overproduce the songs like on your own, which uses that like eighties drum loop keyboard thing that's happening. If you had turned that into a fully realized song with like live drums and everything, I think it would lose its charm. Holy Martin told us where 
I think that the fact that they were willing to experiment with a lot of not just weird guitar sounds, but weird drum choices, you know, theme from retro has like a dub feel. It's it's a weird song that other bands probably would have, you know, it was mentioned, you could probably make that a B-side for other bands and maybe 14 songs, you know, okay, you could lose a couple songs. But in the context of the record, I think it kind of works. And all the weirdness from stuff like I'm just a killer for your love and you mentioned death of a party and they all kind of work together. I also really like the fact, I didn't really think about this until I was reading about the record a little bit more. This is the first time that Damon Alborn really focuses on first person lyrics. He was so good at telling stories about characters, but there was always this like, disconnect emotionally they were always really well written songs with really great melodies but they always were about something else it wasn't really singing about himself and on this one uh, this is a very personal album in a lot of ways like beetle bum is about basically him and justine frischman using drugs together um and there's a uh, look inside america that was i believe written while they were on tour in america yeah um so it's it's a very like different approach that makes the songs, I think, step up a little bit more than just being great songs and actually sounding emotional, which I never really applied to Blur. There was, it's almost was like lab created songs that were like perfect, but they weren't something that I like dug my emotional heel into. Um, they were just kind of gorgeous. Like I mentioned the universal, that's just a gorgeous song. And this album, because it's kind of stripped down because it's weird and there's noisy and it's got lo-fi parts and they're willing to like put it on the line. It makes it a much more interesting and, and uh, easier, easier to connect to as a record. So that's what works for me. Jim, what works for you on this record? Uh, you and Jake kind of are hitting a lot of the main things to me. I remember getting this in 97 when it came out and it was an interesting amalgamation of sounds because you have Stephen Street who's been doing their past couple albums so you still have that kind of pristine production going on but then you have the fact that they're really really into indie rock so you've got Graham kind of leading the charge and doing his incredibly inventive guitar playing in odd and wacky ways but it all comes together to make songs so the end result is you end up I remember at the time I was almost thinking this sounds like a compilation of underground indie bands, you know, different indie bands because the styles keep jumping from from song to song, but it kind of reminded me of almost um, the Ralph Small albums of the 90s, like the Saturday Morning Cartoon alternative album and stuff. Like if you remember, he produced a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. So it was, they'd all have that same kind of sound, but it would be Juliana Hatfield and, you know, Material Issue and other bands all doing different songs, but they sound the same. They have the same production. So that's, this ends up sounding like a really odd and inventive compilation album to me in some ways, but it also very much signals the end of that very um, tightly fine-tuned song craft that marked their earlier releases to allow them the freedom to actually start to kind of explore things as more of a band band again, as opposed to four old friends who were just really unbelievable musicians who can you know, communicate on a certain level they, they, they started to allow themselves to kind of branch out and make mistakes and do weird things. And I think it paid off in spades. You can, you can hear so much in this album. You can hear the beginning gorillas even. And like you said, this yeah. absolutely launches Graham into that happiness in magazines and the, the other album that he did after this one, when he went straight down like a more poppy guitar indie attack after his first two albums were very, very experimental and like minimalist. Yeah, Death of a Party kind of sounds like early gorillas in some ways like it has a Clint Eastwood vibe
which is yeah. which is I don't know if he was even even considering doing that. Um, but that was definitely like something I was not ex- expecting to hear. I remember listening to this record, you know, probably a decade ago and and revisiting tracks here and there. Uh, but I didn't remember some of the deeper album cuts. And so hearing that, I was like, oh, okay. And I feel like I, I, the the Beatles influence was always obvious on them, especially because the way that Damon would sing and the harmonies and like that kind of thing. But Jay, you mentioned David Bowie. I, I never always got a Bowie sense from them, but it is on this record, like Strange News from Another Star. And there, there is a huge Bowie influence, especially those like weird Brian Eno albums where they're experimenting and it would carry on into the next record. Cause there's a lot of experimenting on the next record. Um, way more than this. Yeah, I was, actually, I, I almost picked 13 as my album, uh, partially because I did a, got shortlisted for a 33 to third book for it years ago, which was oh. not chosen. So, oh. but I, the reason I went, I, I, I moved back from that and chose this instead is 13 is a bit of a deeper album and it's not, it's an album I think anybody that listens to it and gives it the time will fall in love with it and understand mm-hmm. what a, what an incredibly complex album it is and how how much is going on there. But if you're trying to get somebody interested in Blur, this is an excellent starting point, especially when you're like, hey, it's got the one song that you know, the woohoo one, but you're going to be really surprised at how many other tracks are on there and how varied they are and how great they are. Um, with, I, I guess, to I can't remember who it was that was dissing Essex Dogs, but... Um, <laughs> It does go on a bit, but I, I also think that's a weird one because I'm pretty sure that's got a, a tortoise influence to it. Like, I think they prop, I think that was based on them hearing uh, millions now living will never die. And they were like, oh, well, let, we could do stuff like that. So it's almost like that's when, when Blur heard Tortoise, that's what they heard in their head, which is funny because that's kind of what I heard in my head when I saw Tortoise live in the 90s. And when I heard the albums, I was always like, oh my God, this is so sleepy and dubby. What, what happened? <laughs> I, um, that's uh, in, in Essex Dogs. I don't know what's happening at the beginning of that song, if that's Graham Cox and messing with a guitar or if it's like a synth or something, but it's like speeding up and slowing down uh-huh. in this pattern. And I'm, I have no idea what, what instrument that is, or if it's even, I mean, it could be a drill. It could be, it could be anything. I don't know what's going on with that noise, um, but it's really weird. And that's, I mean, it's a appropriate ending song. And then there's also like this chunk of noise uh, at the end of the, the, the classic hidden track uh, after Essex Dogs. Um, I believe it's referred to as uh, Dance Hall officially. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of B-sides too that uh, came out and then they actually put out a whole compilation after this um, called Bustin' and Dronin, which has like different mixes of uh like William Orbit and Moby and um some other people do well it was actually the William Orbit remix of Moving On that was on Busted and Droning that caused them to bring in him to produce 13 because they ah, liked okay. what he did how he mixed it up and that then fed into how they recorded 13 which was far more jam record everything cut it up turn it into an album restructure stuff so that's that's when they find that's when they hit the super um experimental end but the b-sides on this album definitely point to that direction that's where they're going and i mentioned that they had a previously had a war with you know oasis back in 95 it was 95 i double checked oasis's be here now comes out this year later like this comes out in february in like august be here now comes out and i remember like the the video for you know what i mean like it was it was an event you're like oh my gosh there was like a helicopter sound at the beginning it was like the looks like nom or something was happening and it was so epic and that album it's not terrible but it's so bloated it was a lot of cocaine and they they were like we have to write singles we got to be the biggest band in the world um it's interesting hearing now like the two directions the band went whereas blur was like we gotta we're super popular but we gotta change things up like we're bored and we're gonna we're gonna we're not gonna do this anymore if we can't change it up and whereas oasis were like we're gonna do exactly what we just did and we're going to do it with 50 more guitars tracked and we're going to make the loudest <laughs> album ever made. 
Uh, well, I mean, the 30th anniversary of Be Here Now is not too far away, and there is a chance that we could maybe we could get Ed Stasium to remix that album so we can finally listen to it and enjoy it. <laughs> Who's ever handling the replacements remixes yep. needs, yeah. Is that Ed Stasium? <laughs> That's Ed Stasium. Yes. Because everybody loves the, the remixes <laughs> of the uh, replacements albums. Jay, the Tim box set just came out. We reviewed Tim for the yeah. uh, podcast. And I haven't heard it yet, but I've heard that it sounds amazing. Like everything oh, cool. that any complaint you would have about that mix nice. has been rectified by Ed Stasium. That's awesome. Like they found guitar parts that weren't in the original mix and added right. them. You you uh, can hear Tommy Stinson's bass. <laughs> yeah. With yeah, a lot that, of the, the records like that, you, you can tell like they're probably tracked fine. It's just mm-hmm. whatever happened in the mixing process, somebody either between like they use a shitty um car stereo to listen to it and just mixed it poorly or (laughs) were on so much cocaine they couldn't hear anything but like it's great to hear that uh bands are going back and and fixing things like that i don't know it sounded great in a pinto when i listened to it (laughs) exactly (laughs) right uh so jay is there anything on this record that does not work for you well, with the experimentation, you're going to get bloat. So I think it's a it's a trade-off here. Um, I think some of the moments I talked about earlier don't happen without the process, but then the process also nets, you know, whole songs that I think are, to me, throw away, like don't add a whole lot for me. Um, or the so theme from Retro is one, I don't love X6 Dogs. Um, I'm just a killer for you is another example where it's just, it feels a little tired. It lacks charm. Like, I think it, I, I want some charm or snark out of it or something. And it just sounds like they're about to fall asleep. Um, it's got a pretty decent chorus, but it just lacks energy. It feels maybe, maybe overworked or, or something. <laughs> like a minute or more of unnecessary stuff at the end of strange news which is one of my favorite songs on the record i don't know that that's necessary and then i'm also i struggle with a lot of the songs take a while to start and part of what i'm liking is that there's a lot of like i think magic in that because it disorients you and then it pulls you into the song but at an hour long running time, some of that stuff also starts to become like it wears on you. It's, it's, it's a bit of a commitment to make it through the record um, over and over because of that. So there's some bloat here that I, I wouldn't mind seeing trimmed up a bit and it just being a little bit sharper and maybe just a little bit more energy consistently across the record. What didn't work for you, Tim? I concur with you that it's a little long. Um, I do agree with Darren. I think country sad ballad man following song two is a mistake. Swap that with on your so own. weird. <laughs> like sw- just swap those two songs and it makes yeah. more sense to me. Yeah. Um, it just, it just flattens the, <laughs> the emotional hit yeah. of song two. And then you go into MOR, which again is a great song. Yeah. Uh, but that, that sandwich between the two of them is, I, you know, and I get it. They're trying to be, uh, you know, the opposite of what people would expect. Yeah. So let's put this almost five minute long, weird acoustic ballad <laughs> between yep. these two songs. Um, About a country sad ballad, man. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> and if anything, like that's one of the songs I would lose because it just feels like old Dare, old uh, da- uh, Damon. Um, you know, if it was on Park Life or The Great Escape, it would be produced differently. But that could have that sort of third person approach to the songwriting is probably less interesting to me. Um, I think. I like I'm just a killer for your love. It it weirdly has like a like some girls Rolling Stones vibe with those like high uh, falsetto vocals. Um, It almost sounds like it could be like their take on something like, you know, one of those 70s coked out (laughs) jams that the Rolling Stones would put on the their records like or um, trying, what was this? Oh, it's, I think it's on Tattoo You. It's called Slave, where it's just like, dirt, dirt, dirt. it's just like oh, this. Oh, that song's killer, man. It's killer. This isn't as good as that. Right, but right. but it, <laughs> Slave doesn't really have a chorus. It has no, like, I know. It just no. kind of repeats and it jams and you get like sections that repeat. And there's like, a you know, Mick doing his falsetto thing. There's a charm to that that yes. I think is missing from this song. Like, it's, yeah. there's a little something I couldn't, can't quite put my finger on the to spark a life that it needs that yeah the the stones would have the it, Beatles it, would do it could do a song like this but it, it would have it I don't know it needed the um the switch from lo-fi to hi-fi like halfway through the song like the way that death cab does um at the beginning of we've got the facts and we're voting yes where the song mm-hmm. starts lo-fi and then like halfway through the song it kicks into hi-fi and you're like whoa this song is much bigger all of a sudden it just needed like that little kick in the butt, like halfway through to turn it into a really good song. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't have a ton of complaints. I like the overall record cause it has this unique approach to everything. The guitar playing there, you know, the songs are weird. They make odd choices that, are not commercially driven which is really interesting for a band that was so hugely popular um yeah i can't think of a i'm trying to think of bands that have like purposely tried to not sabotage maybe neil young is like the only one where you're like we're gonna make an album that we know people are not gonna like like we're gonna lose some fans but we have to do this or we're breaking up essentially what what do you um you talked a little bit about the lyrics I found them very different from there's like some songs that are like almost nonsensical. And then there's others mm-hmm. that are like super sharp and concise. And then you, you, you pointed out the sort of switch in voice. Um, where are you at lyrically on this record? Well, I get it. Like people have made fun of song two for the lyrics. Cause they're kind of nonsensical. Um, I don't mind that in the sense that, as long as they're fun, that's okay. If the song is a bore and you're giving me nonsensical lyrics, then I'm going to like not be interested. Like, I don't know what I got my head checked by a jumbo jet means, <laughs> but I kind of don't care. <laughs> like, it's just, it's a good choice of words. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, uh, 2000s Wilco. Like sometimes Jeff Tweedy sings a line I don't know what the hell he's talking about, but it's an interesting combination of words. It's kind of poetic in a way sometimes. So I I can, I'll let it slide. Um, I think Damon is always, well, or he was, I don't know if he's like this anywhere. I think sometimes he overthinks some of the stuff and it gets too cute with some of his lyrics um, in a way that no Gallagher has never has never gotten cute <laughs> with any of his his lyrics. He's gonna rhyme, you know, door and floor. You know, you know what's happening. There's no surprises. Uh, there's just huge melodies. It's all gonna be big major chords and that kind of thing. Whereas some of the times here, or some some of the time here, I I just I don't know what's going on. So I'm just kind of like letting it wash over me. Because mm-hmm. um, as long as the melody is there, I kind of go okay. It's 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 cool um what about you is there anything that doesn't work for you jim on this record anything that bothers you especially in revisiting now from 97 when you first got it is there anything that's changed in your perception 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm listening to what you're both talking about, and a lot of it makes sense. Um, I think on the lyrics, you're both correct. Um, some of them are very intentional and personal. Other ones are literally just nonsense because they sounded good and they sounded good thrown together. Some of them are literally like stuff pulled out of financial section of the newspaper and thrown in there. Like they're, it's not quite a William Burroughs cut up kind of idea, but it was definitely a Mm -hmm. whatever works with the song is what works with the song so you might feel a bit of a disconnect because some of the songs are very direct and other ones if you try to interpret what the lyrics are you're not going to get it because it's it's more the vibe of the song that the lyrics are feeding into and it's funny because i do remember in 97 thinking it was long and being very confused when i started buying the singles off this album and hearing the b-sides because you'd hear something like all my life which is super super catchy like could have been a great single um, Swallows of the Heat Wave is a very, very kind of lo-fi pavement song, so much so that it's <laughs> kind of biting the swallows from the slipstream from pavement. Um, and I was confused at the time as to why those weren't on the album. In the intervening years, I've kind of listened to it over and over again and been like, okay, this is intentional. Yes, there's definitely some stuff that could have been at least leaned up a little bit because it is a little flabby in some spots, but in general, I think it's an intentional album as far as where it feels like it drags sometimes. And I do think that, I do think putting something like Country Sad Ballad Band right after song two makes sense because it does immediately, you've gone from Beetlebum, which is kind of a mellow but energetic start to the album, but sets the bar for it being, you know, this is gonna be a personal thing, but all of a sudden you've got this two minute bombast that just hits you with nonsense lyrics and a woo hoo woo hoo all the time. And then right after that, you go into Country Sad Ballad Band. So you know, okay, we're in for a ride. We, I don't know where the band is going to take me. Whatever I was expecting from previous albums is clearly off the table. They have thrown out the rule book and they're just going to do what they feel is right. And you were either along for the ride at the time or you weren't. And I think in retrospect, a lot of people did come along for the ride. I mean, I'm a little bummed that <laughs> a lot of people probably bought the album for one song and listened to that uh, song and put the album away. <laughs> yeah, that sequencing, uh, the suggestion Tim had, would have helped MOR quite a bit. The first time I've heard that suggestion, and you're right, that would have been a, it would have made for a, a, a smoother re-entry coming out of sound. Just, I, you could have digested it a little yeah. smoother. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and MOR, I mean, I, that's, that could have been a hit song in, in the US too. I mean, I know they released it in a single, but I don't remember it. I don't remember it. Um, maybe for all those people that bought the record for song two, or they had they heard that song right after it, things might be, a little different. I don't know. <laughs> Everybody's like, wait a minute, there's more than three songs on this on this album? Well, I had no idea. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and to be fair, this is probably the album that when we would go CD shopping would be be in the used bin the most. Because mm -hmm. people who bought The Great Escape and, and Park Life kept those records. And a lot of people who didn't know what they were buying when they bought Song 2 were like, oh, this is weird. Now, if <laughs> if that song had been on Park Life, it wouldn't fit, but maybe they would have kept the record because that's that album's so catchy yeah. and right. You no, know, but there's so much weirdness on this record. Yeah, that it you you you're not you're it's gonna be it's gonna be a a chore to for a new fan of Blur to go. Oh my God! If song two was on Park Life, they would have been oh they're that band about girls and boys and the guy from Quadrophenia and woohoo! Yes, <laughs> it would have been insane. Um. So, I mean, we're not going to talk about how this did, because obviously this is a globally known song and the album was very successful and it pretty much got universally praised reviews, um, either four out of five or four and a half stars. Um, NME gave it a, a seven out of 10, which is good. But I mean, I think of that as like a C because when I got grades in school, I was usually in the 70 percent, uh, you know, and I was getting C's. <laughs> For the most part, if I got in the 80s, like, you know, my parents were proud and took me to Ponderosa. I mean, it was. Ooh. <laughs> get, a, got a nice well done steak at Ponderosa. Yeah. Get a get a Salisbury steak at Ponderosa. And a, or either that or ground round. Those are the two that oh, I would go to celebrate a B plus or something like that. Hey, very good job, Timmy. <laughs> oh, you got an A for lemon You're like, yeah, I'm, getting that, I'm getting that loaded baked potato. They did not. I did not score many A's. Let's put it that way. I was. Uh, I was. We were at dinner the uh, the other day, and it was with my wife, my daughter, and, and a friend of ours, and they were talking about something, 
and I could not grasp the, what they were trying to do, what they were trying to do this thing, like music class related. And she turned and uh, our friend Renee turns to Katie and goes, was Tim on like an IEP in, in grade school? IEP meaning like an indiv- individualized um, <laughs> educational plan for people, usually it's for people with like, yeah, you know, autism wow. <laughs> or stuff like that. <laughs> and Katie goes, he should have been. And she was completely being on, like she was not making fun of me. Like, right. She kind of uh, said it in a hush tone. Like, right. So school and I did not work well together because I, I, I have a really hard time learning from like, I have to do what this is where I have to like immerse myself for a week yeah. in yeah. an album to really like sort of understand it. And you can't do that when you're trying to write a five page paper on, yeah. you know, the Hindenburg or whatever. That said, d- diversion aside, um, I'm not surprised the single did well. It's a super catchy freaking song, obviously. And I'm not surprised the album d- hasn't been the one that people like stick with in the United States. Um, and they would continue this on the next record. I kind of feel like they're now with this 13 and then Think Tank was a weird record. Didn't have Dick Graham Coxon on it. Um, they're they're kind of I don't know are are they they're not a legacy band obviously because they're still putting out new records but like do they have, still have the same cachet globally that Oasis does? I think right now they might be bigger. Oh my god! I hope I don't get canceled for this one. They might be bigger than Oasis right now, primarily because of the fact that they're still active. They, I mean, they've we've thought they were going to break up numerous times, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw them at Wembley earlier this summer and it was an amazing huge show it was massive and it was a huge event and I know they've been doing festivals throughout this summer at other places and they're all just massively packed and then they've done some a mini tour of their own just just them playing and again massively packed so they still have the global cachet it's just always 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 abuses me that in the entire world everybody knows who Blur is but if you come to the US you're like "Uh, it's the guy from the it's the singer from Gorillaz. It's his other band. And people mm-hmm. are like, oh, Gorillaz. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know him. Oh, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I, I think that they are uh, unbelievably still a rather large international concern. Um, and I think with the most recent album, they probably came back to kind of make that argument for remaining in the running because you're right. Think Tank was a really weird album without having Grant Coxon on it. Um, Magic Whip was kind of put together quickly, but in a more, in a less cohesive way than the new album, which was also put together very quickly. I mean, my understanding is they literally booked the show at Wembley last year. And then they were like, should we record an album between now and then and put it out to have a reason for the show? And they were like, sure. (laughs) And they literally bashed it out (laughs) together in in a very short period of time. And it's quite a good record too. Yeah, that's just it. They're they're still making a case for being an ongoing concern. Like they're they're not legacy in that, their new material does not sound like a constant rehash of their old stuff, nor does it sound like a band who's incredibly outdated. So I think that's an unusual stance to be in at this point in their career. Although I keep forgetting, like we're talking about an album, they hadn't even been a band for 10 years when this came out. And we're talking about how they're like massive global superstars and hitting the end. And you're like in nine years, that's gotta be, I can only imagine the mind bend that has to be. Yeah. That I, I hadn't considered that, but yeah, they, they had a pretty fast, rise i mean you know leisure comes out in 91 they get they have like one good single off of that record um but then that when that three album run in three years of modern life is rubbish park life and the great escape and that happening you know in concert with like the whole not just brit pop but like the whole aspect of british culture sort of evolving and um what was who was the politician that uh, with Tony Blair? Oh, you're of Tony Blair and like the rise of Cool Britannia. Yeah, and, that whole thing was happening yeah. where it was it was a completely like uh, rejuvenation of British music. Essentially, they weren't as interested as copying what was happening in the United States as like really coming in with something unique and um, specifically British, um, except for Butch. Bush was more than happy to sound exactly like an American band. Sure. Well, sure. <laughs> Thus, uh, guaranteeing they were never heard in Britain. 
which is wild to me that that that, that happens. But I mean, there are metal bands that you know yeah. don't do well here, but then do well in Europe. So that happens. But I was gonna say, I think of of the three uh, uh, albums in the two thousands, Ballad of Darren is probably my favorite in comparison to Magic Whip and Think Tank, which is interesting because you know that's uh, 20, 30, 32 years after their first release. So that's not bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, bands are not supposed to last that long. You know, you should have a good run and then the lead singer goes solo. <laughs> that's uh, a tangent. If you think about it, we're the first generation to deal with pop bands that have 30 to 40 year careers because <laughs> it just didn't exist. Before. Right. Yeah, usually so somebody it, would die. Super weird. <laughs> You know, like with you'd have Bonham die with Led. I mean, would Led Zeppelin have kept going if Bonham hadn't died? Oh, or was yeah. Robert Plant going to go make solo records regardless? The Eagles and Fleetwood Mac are still going, even though they're missing people. I, I imagine it would be the Robert Plant Jimmy Page show if if Bonham had stuck around. Like they'd still they'd probably get together more often because it probably would have had wouldn't have had such a final ending to the band. Right. Well, this, this I mean, Blur's unique. They haven't had a single member change since the beginning, so that's pretty interesting they have had a heck of a lot of touring musicians with them uh a lot of a lot of horn players yeah um that's the most you would it's not like i mean they've had so many trumpet players and trombone players it's like a freaking like a, a a college marching band they can they've employed essentially um let's get to our final ratings on this record i'll share you know, the... what, what, one super quick thing oh. before we move on just because you you mentioned it when i saw them this year at wembley it was just the four of them like they brought out phil daniels to sing park life the london community gospel choir came out for tender but other than that it was the four guys in the band on stage just commanding an entire stadium so they could still do it with just four people which to me is another true sign of a great band like any band that can break it down to just the guys and still make a racket that's that's tremendous to me and that's amazing because i don't understand why there are like seven people in the foo fighters i well the funny thing is paul <laughs> weller opened for blur and i swear to god he was quieter and he had twice as many people on stage with him i don't know what they were doing <laughs> right i mean all the stuff that graham cox is doing on guitar you would think oh they would have a touring second guitarist just to cover like some rhythm stuff nope He's like, I got it. Don't worry. Which is why I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. to, No, no, no. That's okay. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Yeah. Let's get to our, I'll I'll share the uh, poll results from Patreon in just a moment, but let's get to our final ratings. Jay, this is going to be, I'm interested to see where this is going to go. Are you a worthy album, a better EP or a decent single on this? I'm a worthy album. I would just cut. Um, Theme for retro from retro and X6 dogs. Uh, I could even keep I'm just a killer for you. I mean, I, I don't think it's one of the stronger songs on the record, but I think it fits. Uh, mm-hmm. And that would chunk off pretty good. Could at least a couple, but five, 10 minutes off the record, which I think it makes it a lot easier to digest uh, and enjoy listening to, I think, on repeated listens. So, yeah, I'm going to wear the album with a couple little edits. I'm with you. I would agree. I, I don't like Essex Dogs. I would chop that one and the little bonus track. And I would probably make the switch of On Your Own and Country Sad Ballad Man. Or I'd even like move Country Sad Ballad Man to a B side and make it a 12 song record. Cause I just, it's a little long. Maybe if it was at the end and it was like two and a half minutes, I'd, I'd be more chill with it. But it's at almost five minutes. It's a little too long for me. So, but totally worthy album. And I think. Honestly, this is probably one of the most interesting albums of the decade in terms of not just where Blur was as a popular band, but just there's so much cool guitar stuff happening. And it's like the opposite of like a virtuoso guitarist. It's mm. like it's like the weird end of of guitar players who are like, what if I get this weird pedal and I disconnect this wire and <laughs> like create yeah. and run that through this fan? and create these weird effects and what if i put a magnet on my pickup uh i don't know if you know this jay but uh graham coxon has a signature fender like he pretty much just plays fender guitars and he has his own signature uh fender so really? he's yeah he's, he's, a, he's he plays a telecaster right yeah 
He's yeah. played like an SG um, in the studio and he's done some, you know, messing around with other guitars, but he's primarily a Fender player, Fender, Fender Telly player, um, which I think that sounds like this record. Like this doesn't sound like a Les Paul yeah. through a Marshall stack. No, no. <laughs> it's very Telecaster. Yes. Sounding. Yep. Uh, this is perfunctory, but uh, we're the album better EP, decent single. What do you I don't know. After talking to you guys, I, I think I've changed my mind and I'm going to go with decent single Essex, Essex <laughs> dogs, clearly. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We're the album. <laughs> of course. Of course. Hey, you know, we, the last one we did, the, the person agreed with us and, and said, we're the, uh, said better EP. I know. So, I heard that. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> like, sir, you need to listen to the albums you suggest more fully. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a risky move. Uh, to, I mean, there are records that I don't fully love, but there's like half of the record that I love. And then the other half, I'm like, I don't, I don't listen to this, but I, I would throw it up in a similar situation to see what other people think. Cause maybe I'm loony. Uh, our, our patrons, they agreed with us. 80% were the album and I, you know, 20% better EP. I need to point out, I, I messed up. I had this in the drafts folder and I didn't move it to the scheduling i didn't hit the scheduling button so it didn't go out to schedule like a week I usually put these up a week before the podcast when we record so it went up this morning and i told everybody i was like hey i i messed up this got more votes than pretty much any poll that we've <laughs> got this year so apparently pressuring everybody at the last minute last minute got everybody to vote creating a sense of urgency we, we're all sense of, we're all pro procrastinators or or we like we like drama and deadlines mm -hmm. or something like that deadlines work <laughs> so we need to thank all of our commenters and all of our voters for uh for coming to my rescue for almost uh, screwing up the uh important patron con contributions to this episode um oh yeah i forgot album artwork <laughs> so this is a stock photo on the album they're they're like product the company that they're working with to do the album design found this and I guess it's supposed to represent their career being rushed into the emergency room. <laughs> like they're, they're on life support essentially as a band. So that's why that I, I, I that's the, the, the Wikipedia theory. I just thought, I thought that was interesting and funny that like, Oh, why is that person pushing a gurney? Oh, it's the band. They're, they're going to break up if they, if this doesn't go well, that's no pressure. Uh, Jim, that thank you. More of a hypothesis behind the photo. Than yes, <laughs> thank you for picking this record. I'm glad we finally got to one of the big uh, Britpop bands because we've covered some of the big grunge bands, obviously with Soundgarden and, and Nirvana, uh, but we hadn't covered one of the big Britpop bands, even though we've done a Britpop roundtable many, many, many years ago. When was that? It was 2015. Oh, we were just kids. Oh my goodness, we were just a lifetime kids. ago. We were, you know, living high, uh, you know, in the, in the in the Obama years, just uh, so fancy innocent. free and footloose and fancy free, shaking hands with strangers, shaking hands and <laughs> running, working, going into crowded spaces without a care in the world. Yep, it was a magical time, magical time. Uh, these are all the. Can you name all the um, roundtables you've been on with us? I can't. I can't. I. Britpop was one female artists of the nineties, Chicago in the nineties. That was a no brainer. Yeah. Uh, new albums of 2016, the Veruca salt sophomore slump revisited for eight harms to hold you, which makes sense. You're, that's a Chicago band um, alternative country in the nineties, the spoon origins round table, <laughs> the sophomore slump reversed round table and Lollapalooza in the 90s tour and festival roundtable. We need to get back to doing some more of those. Those were fun. Uh, yeah, so this is number 10 for you. Congratulations and welcome to the uh, the big board, the double hey, digit hey. board. <laughs> you turned me from, from a pundit into a Patreon member. So, <laughs> And we greatly appreciate it because... It's also because you've gotten so popular that this is the only way to get on your show anymore. It, yeah. it's, it is true. <laughs> Uh, every week we're battling with uh, NPR for the top spot uh, in the podcasting uh, universe. 
I don't. I do find it interesting that you're based in you yourself are based in Columbus. You're because you or Jay, you were originally from Columbus, and Rob Harvilla is currently in Columbus, also doing a very popular podcast about '90s music. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering is is there something about Columbus being the nexus of '90sism <laughs> that just that's what's happening? If you if you go over, we're there stuck area, there, like yeah. Cloud and aura around Columbus that just sucks in everything '90s. It's where everything it kind of just averages out. <laughs> yes. And we still have a we have a independent radio station that's not connected to iHeartRadio that probably had its biggest era in the 90s and while it plays new music if it plays something old it's usually 90s stuff that we would be listening to. <laughs> so that's very much the demographic of that radio station is like I'm I'll check out this new Cage the Elephant song but let's get back to, to you know Everclear and Spoon. <laughs> but another one from Tracy Bonham first. There you go. Who just happened to be the co- subject of our last episode, which is why that was on your mind. <laughs> uh, if you would like to be like Jim or one of the many other patrons who commented and voted in this uh, for this episode, you can join us over at patreon.dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. It's also where you can go to vote in our monthly album tournament polls where albums suggested by anyone over at digmeoutpodcast.com are entered into our monthly tournaments it's also where you can read the box newsletter once a week usually on the weekend it comes out via our sub stack it has all the new releases of 80s 90s and aughts relevant music movies tv shows books documentaries etc um plus two new one minute reviews a lot of good stuff has come out recently. I got to give a shout out to Spartan Records who have put out just a ton of really cool things. They put out the Alan Apley solo album, the last Shiner record. They put out uh, this band called uh, Leech Eater. Or no, sorry, Sisters. The album is called Leech Eater, which is the guy from Molly Maguire and the guy from Spotlights. It's just a nice slab of heavy, psych- psych- slightly psychedelic sounding rock. Uh, if you if you're into Shiner and Molly Maguire and those kind of bands, you'll definitely be into that. Um, and they just put out one an album by a band called Train Dodge, which was like a '90s. They haven't put out an album in quite a long time, and another like heavy post hardcore band. Uh, Box newsletter is where you can find out about all those new releases, and then finally, Apple Podcast is where you go to leave some positive positive feedback for the show. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. She turns me on.